Good morning. Who is that? Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, December 9th, 2016. We have an um, excellent visiting speaker that Dr. Goodman is going to introduce in a second. But first, um, some dates that I had reminded you on the screen. Big one will be Friday. We're coming into the home stretch on our intern recruitment breakfast, so turnouts have been great. And continuing to finish strong before the holiday is appreciated. Next week will be our last Grand Rounds before the, the holiday break with uh, Dr. Stephen Patrick from Vanderbilt University on neonatal abstinence syndrome. And I do want to share as I get them, as I often receive kudos that come across my desk, this again from Jessica LaPearl and the patient voices uh, feedback that we get on a patient um, a family described a three-hour wait time in the emergency room, but mom reports that later they heard the patient surgeon was tracking their arrival and came to see her the minute they were shown into an examining room. It made the long wait to seem almost worth it. She went on to explain uh, that, that the doctor was, um, was very accommodating in, 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 in being able to reach uh, the surgeon, quote, he isn't even our usual doctor, but he went over and above the call of duty. Her regular doc is on vacation, but he's back as of today. Can you believe they came in together this morning? That really pleased me. I'm very impressed. So there's the surgical team. Dr. Bartscheiger was the, the, the doctor, Rito, if you see him, who got particular uh, praise. And then for all of us, the patient uh, themselves, I don't know what age, quote, other hospitals don't have the same kind of doctors I need. They're nicer here, and I think they're smarter. So <laughs> take that with you. And uh, Professor of Pediatrics and TDI, who's gotten some attention in the Los Angeles Times this week, Dr. Goodman's going to introduce Dr. Rowe. Uh, so good morning, and it's, it's really a uh, and truly my honor to be able to introduce uh, Dr. Peter Rowe. Peter got his uh, medical degree from McMaster's University uh, and then did his residency in pediatrics at Johns Hopkins where we and I, uh, he and I sort of hung out together for some of that time, got to know Peter. Uh, after his residency, he stayed at Hopkins and did a Robert Wood Johnson uh, Clinical Scholars uh, uh, fellowship. I guess at that time it was a RWJ General um, Pediatric Academic Development Program. Although he did uh, unusual research, uh, and his papers uh, were unlike anything probably that any other clinical scholar had done. It was not health services research. Uh, it, it was inquiry into some of the uh, uh, basic mechanisms of pediatric uh, disease. And that has been uh, the tradition of Peter's career. He's a general pediatrician. He's a very active clinician uh, and teacher, um, and, but has had a very active uh, investigative career on such topics as Rye syndrome, Kawasaki's disease, bronchiolitis, hemolytic uremic, uremic syndrome, and I would say these are not trivial uh, papers. These are papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and in JAMA, um, but then really found um, a mystery, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and which he has uh, worked on in the last, what, I guess close to 20 years now, uh, and is the, really the national leader, again, both in clinical care as well as in investigation in this uh, syndrome. So Peter, thank you for, for coming back up north. You guys hear me? Well, thank you, uh, David and, and Keith, for the invitation to join you this morning. Um, David said that we hung out uh, a bit together at Hopkins, but we really worked very closely together. and. Um, I'll just share one story that uh, in my, my second year I'd met uh, my wife and uh, we, she was doing her master's degree. I was busy as a second year resident at the time working 24 hours on and 24 hours off at, as we did. And we realized that if we were going to plan a wedding, uh, it would take every free moment we had over the next year and bring our families down from Canada and Massachusetts and we thought this probably didn't make much sense. So we decided to go to the, uh, the uh, Baltimore City uh, Courthouse 
and David and Patty were our entire wedding party. Uh, uh, and David, I just wanted to reassure you that things have gone well. We just had our, our, uh, our 33rd wedding anniversary. My wife uh, gave me a card saying, Happy 33rd, thank you for 25 of the best years of my life. So, so I'm going to talk about uh, chronic fatigue syndrome today. And, and as uh, uh, David said, it's been a little over 20 years now. And I thought what would be helpful would be to structure the talk this way. There's been a lot of discussion about what we mean by chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, in part because it's a disease or a condition that does not have a single biomarker. So it, it is defined by clinical criteria. And so there's been a lot of discussion about this, and there's some dilemmas about the definition we use currently. And then I want to make this practical because I want to, and I want to dig into uh, a case uh, that we saw recently, uh, explain how we go about sorting through the number of problems that these patients have. And then I'll shift a bit to some of the key research findings that have come out in the last couple of decades, but some of them will be oriented towards explaining why we did what we did with this girl. And if there's time at the end, I'll talk a little bit about a recent Institute of Medicine report uh, on the evidence behind uh, how we define, uh, it's, as it's called by the federal government, MECFS for myalgic encephalomyelitis. And then uh, the committee that I was a member of proposed a new name, and there was some controversy about that. So if we've got time at the end, we'll dig into that. So the fatigue in the, the definition that we use for chronic fatigue syndrome was first published in 1994. And the chief author was Keiji Fukuda, who was with the CDC at the time. And these, uh, this definition is often erroneously referred to as the CDC criteria. But it was an international consensus committee. And in order to have fatigue, uh, the the definition stated that you needed to be sick for at least six months. That gets rid of a lot of the post-viral fatigue that you see uh, that's going to resolve spontaneously. Uh, and the fatigue had to be new or of a definite onset. It couldn't be lifelong since early childhood. It couldn't be the result of excessive uh, call schedules by your chairman uh, or uh, excessive athletic participation on the part of the child. It wasn't substantially alleviated by rest, the way most of us uh, feel when we've had a good night's sleep after a tiring week. Uh, and it had to result in some sort of substantial reduction in what that person was able to do beforehand. Uh, the, there was a previous iteration of this in 1988 that insisted on a 50% reduction in activity. But as you can imagine, that's going to be awfully difficult to quantify. Uh, in addition to fatigue, you needed four of these eight uh, symptoms. One was unrefreshing sleep, and the patients described waking up just as bone-weary as when they went to bed. There's a second one called post-exertional malaise lasting more than 24 hours, meaning that when people exceed their limits of both cognitive and physical effort, they get an exa exaggeration of all of their symptoms, not just fatigue, but often pain, cognitive problems, and lightheadedness. And it can be much more prolonged than 24 to 48 hours. The third is a self-reported impairment in uh, memory and uh, short-term memory and concentration. Think of this as very much uh, akin to suddenly acquiring attention deficit disorder without hyperactivity. The others are pain symptoms, uh, sore throat, tender glands, muscle and joint pain, and headaches. The uh, Fukuda committee recommended a clinical evaluation to look for all other causes of, uh, treatable causes of uh, chronic fatigue. And um, so the basics of which were the history and physical and screening laboratory studies that are very familiar to us in pediatrics because this is what we would do in investigating a child who had failure to thrive. You're looking for disease in any other organ system or any other problem in the body. So a CBC, some measure of inflammation, chemistries, TSH, and a urinalysis. In the 20 years since the definition was published, uh, there have been papers coming out showing that iron deficiency in the absence of anemia can also contribute to fatigue. So most people would now add iron studies. Uh, vitamin B12 deficiency is more common in the era of proton pump inhibitor use, so we check for that. And celiac disease can give you monosymptomatic uh, chronic fatigue. 
and as this audience probably knows better than we do in the Mid-Atlantic, um, there's a fair overlap between Lyme disease and the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome, so many people will screen for this as well. And then the other laboratory studies you might think of, ANA and others, uh, are only done if clinically indicated based on some other part of the history or the lab work. So the Fukuda problem has a few uh, uh, Fukuda criteria have a few problems. One is that unlike, say, the Jones criteria for rheumatic fever, where we have major and minor criteria, there's no insistence on any one of those being a core symptom. So you could have a smattering of pain problems, mild fatigue, and really actually have depression. Uh, so a lot of conditions we know that present with fatigue. Uh, can overlap. And if you don't define core symptoms or insist on certain severity criteria, you can get classification errors. And so one of the uh, biggest of those came in Georgia with a CDC study that used a very loose definition of CFS and concluded that um, patients with CFS had been more likely to be victims of sexual and child abuse, which no clinician had ever seen. And it turned out that they'd uh, enrolled a sample using very broad criteria for CFS that, in, that uh, enrolled 70% of their population with PTSD. Well, we can understand why they might have higher rates of uh, childhood abuse. Uh, but that's the importance of being clear on the definition. Um, Lenny Jason, one of the researchers in this field, uh, illustrated one of the problems with the severity criteria. He asked CFS patients in green and healthy controls uh, how many of them had mild fatigue at least a little of the time. And you can see that it's not a very good or clear discriminator of disease. But if you increase that to asking about moderate severity at least half the time, you begin to see the ability to differentiate uh, mm -hmm. CFS from other conditions. The other problem with the Fukuda criteria is that they're now over 20 years old and they've um, don't reflect the recent uh, research observations, especially the ones that emphasize orthostatic intolerance, which has been an interest of ours, and uh, the primacy of post-exertional malaise as a symptom. And we'll come back to those two topics. Just to show you a bit on the relative frequency of the main Fukuda symptoms, uh, this is from a cohort study we did uh, with 55 children over a two-year span. And at presentation, Almost all of them had unrefreshing sleep uh, some or most of the time, and most had post-exertional malaise at least once a week. That one's a bit tougher to define because people can pace their activity level so they don't exceed their, uh, their threshold for tolerating things. Uh, and so um, uh, some ch children might be uh, so restrictive about activity that they don't aggravate symptoms with uh, effort. Cognitive problems several times a week were pretty common as were headaches, and I threw in their lightheadedness, which was not even described in the 1994 definition, uh, as being present several times a week in three-quarters of the patients. Uh, as you can see, myalgias and some of the other pain symptoms are actually fairly uncommon. So let's move on to how adolescents uh, with CFS present. And this is a girl that I saw from uh, the Baltimore suburbs, a uh, 17-year-old who had had the onset of fatigue, headaches, and joint pain when she was 15. She had some associated uh, problems with menstrual cramping, so her pediatrician appropriately put her on birth control pills, which helped the dysmenorrhea somewhat, uh, but she still had some of these other background symptoms. <coughs> she carried on, and then about two years later, she went to the mid-Atlantic beaches, got bitten by a tick, and had uh, a 16 centimeter uh, erythema migraines rash that was confirmed by a physician, so met the CDC criteria for Lyme, and she had some associated joint pain. Uh, those things improved after a month of amoxicillin. But two months after the onset of the Lyme disease, she noted that she had worse fatigue, uh, lightheadedness, joint pain, headaches, uh, sore throat, and worse concentration than she'd had before. She was having daily fatigue, even though for an adolescent she was getting a reasonable amount of sleep. Uh, sleep was unrefreshing. She had uh, started to take naps after school. And when we asked her about what made the fatigue worse, it was worse when she had her menstrual cycle. It was worse if she stood in line, suggesting an orthostatic component. And it was certainly worse if she tried to exercise. 
she was one of the children who was uh, relatively mildly affected in that she was able to attend school, but she couldn't participate in cross-country like she had done before. Uh, she had fairly nonspecific location of her headaches, uh, but noticed that they were more common towards the end of the school day after she'd been sitting for a length of time. Uh, she had some low back pain when she stood. She had pain in the right hip and knee, and mentioned that her right knee seemed to sublux or pop in and out. She was zoning out more in class. Uh, she was lightheaded when she stood, more, more commonly in the morning when blood volume is at its lowest. Uh, she had some nasal congestion in the fall and a wellness score of 70 out of 100. So this wellness score is something that is a simple unidimensional quality of life measure. We ask them how are they uh, feeling in general and it's anchored at zero for I'm dying and 100 is as good as you could imagine feeling. And as simple as that is, it actually correlates very nicely with ESF 36 and other longer quality of life measures. So we use it as a kind of benchmark for how they're doing. So this is the kind of patient that has eight or nine uh, presenting complaints, probably would make you run screaming out of your uh, general pediatrics <laughs> office and, uh, and quit. But I want to try and show you that you can break these things down. None of them are particularly complicated. Uh, this is just a, a, a graph uh, from our cohort study showing where her wellness score uh, was in the range of children who had chronic fatigue syndrome in our study. The overall, the median wellness was 50, and in a group of controls that we uh, enrolled concurrently, it was around 85 to 90. So when we examined her, she had, as you might expect from the allergic rhinitis type history, nasal bogginess. We do a joint uh, hypermobility examination that I'll show you later, uh, which delivers a Biton score. And a score of four or higher indicates joint hypermobility. So she had a score of five. She had, on my orthopedic examination, which is not a great orthopedic exam, uh, she had some right hip tenderness with internal and external rotation. So something was going on there. And she was tender where she was complaining of pain in the lower back. And one of the things we've started doing is range of motion testing uh, and I'll show you some of that work later. But here's a kid who was hypermobile, and most of us who are relatively healthy as adults can get our legs to 50 degrees or so before we feel stretch in the leg on a passive straight leg raise. She was tight at 36 degrees, so that seemed dissonant and worthy of investigation. We also do a standing test on all of these children, looking for evidence of orthostatic intolerance. It was a 10-minute test leaning against the wall in the clinic. She had a heart rate change of 38 beats per minute and developed lightheadedness. So the, the provocation of orthostatic symptoms was different. The heart rate change was borderline for uh, postural tachycardia. So my problem formulation was that this girl had a mild form of chronic fatigue syndrome. She had a clinical diagnosis of low orthostatic tolerance based on the recurrent lightheadedness and her standing test. She had joint hypermobility. She had some postural dysfunctions and some hip pain. She had persistent uh, menstrual cramping and a menstrual increase in her fatigue. And she had allergic rhinitis. So no one of those is particularly exotic. It's just that they're all there at once, not in seven different uh, visits. So our general approach to treating these patients is to do what pediatricians have always done with chronic illness. You explain and demystify. You describe in general as well as you can the uh, prognosis, which is usually fairly optimistic. You develop some working hypothesis about what the primary influence on fatigue is for that child. Begin non-pharmacologic therapies, which might include you know, giving them some advice about sleep times and sleep duration, an increase in salt and fluid intake if they're orthostatic, um, coping skills or cognitive behavioral therapy if they've got catastrophic sorts of thoughts and worries about the illness. And then we push graded, very gradual increases in exercise. Fairly soon after seeing them, we also begin uh, pharmacologic therapy, as indicated. But it's not one size fits all. You're really focusing on what that child's uh, main symptoms are due to. So if it's a headache, you work on the headaches or the migraines first. If it's uh, menstrual dysfunction, you work on that. If they've got anxiety, you might try something different. And then I think it's really important, given how much uh, of an impact this has, to see them back at regular intervals every one to two months, depending on the distance from the medical center, and then go through the same process again, because if you've fixed their migraines, something else will still be there that needs attention. 
Okay, back to this 17-year-old. Uh, so for her allergic rhinitis, it was pretty simple, a non-sedating antihistamine, loratadine. Uh, for the orthostatic intolerance, we told her to really ramp up her salt intake. Uh, and I, um, again, went hoarse trying to recommend compression garments to an adolescent girl. Uh, the, uh, for the menstrual problems, we realized she was getting about five days of fatigue every time she had a period, so we simply switched her to continuous birth control pills to have one period every three months. Uh, and then we sent her to a physical therapist to do some manual therapy to improve uh, whatever was dysfunctional in the hip. He found uh, reduced mobility in the lower, in the lumbar spine, and he found what probably few of us would be capable of detecting, and that was a rotational abnormality in the pelvis. So her left hemipelvis was rotated anteriorly, the right posteriorly, and then there were compensatory mechanical changes throughout the spine. He felt that this was even involving the diaphragm movement that could therefore lead to some of her fatigue. I wasn't so sure about that, but I thought, knock yourself out, let's treat her and, and see where we get. So uh, at the two-month follow-up, she was still having a lot of orthostatic symptoms, and the concentration and the zoning out in class was becoming more problematic. So we treated her with methylphenidate, which is uh, shown in two small randomized trials in adults with CFS to be effective, and we use it for patients with orthostatic intolerance because the stimulants are very good as vasoconstrictors. Uh, and they push the blood that has pooled in the peripheral extremities back up to the heart and brain. And we thought also this would help with uh, some of the cognitive problems. So that led to a nice uh, improvement. By the four-month point with this combination of, of interventions, she was up to a wellness score of 82. And she continued to do better. So if you fast forward to the one-year follow-up, she was at a uh, university in Philadelphia majoring in nursing. Uh, walking three or four miles a day back and forth to classes, working out in the gym for 45 minutes three times a week, and she said her wellness score was 98, which is better than mine has been in the last couple of years. So you could argue that really she was cured, right? She looked for all intents and purposes like she was over this, uh, and some of the people who have a more behavioral focus on chronic fatigue syndrome would say, yes, you, all you needed to do was get her moving, and uh, she'd be better. But we had this natural experiment where her pharmacy ran out of methylphenidate. You guys have probably seen that uh, in your patients here. Uh, they didn't have it for a week. And even though she was fully physically reconditioned and fit, uh, when she was off the methylphenidate, she immediately had an increase in lightheadedness, uh, headache, and fatigue, all of which improved when she resumed the medication. So I think we were controlling the chronic symptoms. We hadn't cured her by any means. But she's now five years later, a nurse in the New Orleans area still on the methylphenidate and doing very well. So that's a nice example of the uh, outcomes you can achieve in this illness. Um, her, uh, this is a, a graph I often use in teaching the patients and their parents, but I think it's instructive um, that to point out that there are many ways of getting to chronic fatigue syndrome. We think orthostatic intolerance is an important part of that. But uh, by itself, that has many other influences. And if you go around the uh, circle, uh, patients who have bad orthostatic intolerance or severe chronic fatigue syndrome can certainly develop a secondary depression. Uh, anxiety is overrepresented in people with orthostatic intolerance and chronic fatigue syndrome, possibly related to high levels of catecholamines that are part of the response to uh, blood pooling in the limbs with orthostatic intolerance. Food allergies or intolerances are, are more common in these patients. We've got one uh, study being submitted from our cohort that showed 31% of the children with chronic fatigue syndrome had a previously un, undiagnosed uh, delayed hypersensitivity to milk protein. And when we took, that, took milk out of their diet, they had a nice improvement in their quality of life scores. Uh, this girl had the uh, inhalant allergies. She had this illness triggered by infection, it seemed. She had some movement restrictions and the joint hypermobility syndrome. Uh, a small subset of the patients have, um, I can get that working, uh, Chiari uh, type 1 malformation or cervical spine stenosis, so a good neurologic examination looking for those problems is important. It's a very small subset, but important. 
And so this is what this kind of approach uh, with individualized therapy in our cohort study led to. We, we got patients uh, into this mid-70 range after about 12 months and continued tinkering and fine-tuning and trying to improve their activity level. But that doesn't tell you about the patients who are housebound and bedbound. And that's a substantial problem in this field because they never get into the studies. There are some very severely affected patients for whom we don't really have very good answers, and that's becoming more of a focus of the uh, research community. Okay, on to some, uh, some of the research findings from the last little while. Um, it was previously thought that this was uh, a disease of upper middle class individuals, uh, usually women, uh, who just wanted to step off life's merry-go-round, and it turned out that that was quite a pejorative description based on probably who had access to health insurance and who was coming to clinics. Uh, Population-based studies by the CDC and others have shown that this affects uh, previously active individuals from all socioeconomic uh, strata. What is clear is that it's uh, predominantly but not exclusively a, a, a condition that affects women. The ratio of males to f females to males is between 2 and 5 to 1 in different studies. We don't see it much in children under 10. It can occur. Uh, it, and it looks like what the adolescents get. Uh, we usually see it beginning somewhere around the time of the pubertal growth spurt. Uh, the incidence peaks in the 40s, so it doesn't keep getting more common as you get older. Prevalence uh, estimates 4 per 1,000 adults, 1 per 1,000 adolescents, making it one of the more common chronic conditions that we see. And as you've seen from the graph, um, there are heterogeneous precipitating and perpetuating factors, one of which is a hereditary component in that uh, the connective tissue laxity is uh, likely governed by genetic factors. Uh, the proven treatments that have been evaluated in randomized trials are kind of limited. Uh, the, the treatments that work are the ones that are the broadest and least specific, like cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise. But the uh, effect size of those uh, treatments is actually rather modest. So they, while they get um, touted as being almost curative in some papers, uh, they're far from it. And one of the problems in North America, at least in uh, the United States, is that it's very hard to get cognitive behavioral therapy covered. Um, the severity of the illness in adults is comparable to uh, multiple sclerosis and congestive heart failure. That was work from Tony Komaroff's group at Harvard. And we find similar things in pediatrics. Um, it is the most common cause in many jurisdictions of prolonged school absence. So let's break down a few of the things that affected uh, the patient I presented earlier. What about the evidence on infection? One of the best studies recently came from Ben Katz's group in Chicago. They followed 301 adolescents that were referred in from the community pediatricians with acute infectious mononucleosis. And they followed them at 6, 12, and 24 months to see how many met criteria for CFS after those intervals. And one of the striking things is that it was about 13% at 6 months, uh, still 7% at 12, and 4% at 24 months, which seems like a very high proportion of people with mono. But look at the male-to-female differences. The males were only meeting the criteria at about 6 months uh, and then seemed to improve faster. And in other adult studies, you'll see that after Epstein-Barr virus or other acute infections, uh, Q fever and other things, uh, about 10% will go on to get chronic fatigue syndrome. The main risk factor is not anything about their prior behavioral state, but it's really the severity of the initial infection. Um, thus far, we haven't uh, got evidence of active infection in the chronic state, but that's the topic of controversy. There are groups uh, at Stanford who treat most of their patients with antivirals like uh, Valcite uh, and acyclovir, uh, and many people are quite uh, passionate uh, in their faith about that approach. Uh, but others have wondered whether this is whether the infection in chronic fatigue syndrome is acting in, in a hit and run manner triggering some other physiologic dysfunction, maybe an autoantibody or something else, but not responsible for the chronic uh, illness. And one uh, really interesting study that has come out in the last few years came from Norway by uh, Oystein Fluge and Olav Mella. These are two oncologists, 
and they were seeing a woman who'd had chronic fatigue syndrome for 20 years before she developed a lymphoma. And during chemotherapy, uh, she felt absolutely great. She, was, she stood out from, from the pack. Her CFS symptoms resolved. Uh, her, her, her lymphoma was cured, and about three or four months after stopping the methotrexate, she uh, had a resurgence of her CFS symptoms. So she trotted back to the oncologists and asked for more of that poison, please. Um, they were a little bit more circumspect, and they said, well, maybe we shouldn't poison you, but we can try and find something that uh, lowers B-cell counts like methotrexate. They found that rituximab was worth a try, gave her a single infusion, and in about three months, she had, again, this nice improvement in symptoms, lasted about four months, and then it uh, recurred. They tried this in a couple of people who hadn't had lymphoma uh, and then moved quickly to a small randomized trial. I just want to show you a bit of that. They had 15 per group, and in the rituximab group, 10 out of uh, 15, or uh, two-thirds of them, had either a moderate or major improvement that lasted a mean of at least 25 weeks. One person had uh, consistent remission, whereas in the placebo group, two of the 15 improved. And one of the interesting parts of the study was that after two uh, infusions of rituximab right at the beginning of the study, they were able to lower B-cell counts for a prolonged period of time, about six months before they started rising. Their theory being that uh, what they were manipulating was antibody production, uh, autoantibody production directed at the dorsal root ganglia cells uh, it took three or four months to clear up the, the existing inflammation, then they'd have three or four months with all symptoms improved uh, before antibody production uh, resumed. So they've been working on uh, follow-up studies, uh, dosing interval studies, and replication studies, but it's been sort of striking that even a study this promising hasn't been replicated here. Uh, there are a huge number of immunologic abnormalities reported, and this is a busy slide. I just wanted to show that there are a number of studies suggesting abnormalities, none of which have been replicated. The important ones are at the bottom. Uh, Kathy Rowe in Melbourne, no relation to me, is a very experienced clinician in, that's been dealing with CFS longer than I have, and she did the single trial of uh, randomized, a randomized trial of immunoglobulin in adolescents with CFS, showing that it worked that these patients had better outcomes on all sorts of reasonable clinical measures. Again, not replicated anywhere. Uh, the evidence that the adult studies on IVIG, which were uh, generally quite mixed or, or ineffective, has carried the day. Uh, on to the information about orthostatic intolerance. Um, these are the forms of orthostatic intolerance we commonly see in the patients with CFS. One is postural tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, which is defined as a 40-beat increase in heart rate going from supine to standing, and the interval of standing is just 10 minutes. They have to have replication of their orthostatic symptoms. Just having a heart rate change doesn't count. And the other problem that we saw initially much more commonly is uh, neurally mediated hypotension. I'm not doing well with my pointing, but um, uh, this is synonymous with vasovagal syncope. We didn't like the term syncope because not many of the patients with this form of, this pattern of orthostatic intolerance had actually fainted on the tilt table. So, uh, but this was a, a tracing on the tilt table from a medical student who'd failed her first year at Hopkins because of the onset of severe uh, uh, orthostatic <laughs> symptoms. And when we put her on the tilt table, she had a very modest nine-beat change in heart rate, but was very symptomatic immediately. And at the uh, five-minute point, her blood pressure dropped to 50 systolic, heart rate dropped, and she had a couple of tonic-clonic movements. Um, she improved very nicely with medications directed at that problem. We had drawn attention to this overlap back in 1995. I was running a diagnostic clinic, and we noticed that the kids who came in with chronic fatigue syndrome had lightheadedness, uh, fatigue worse when they were standing, shopping at the mall, going to a museum, taking a hot shower. And the kids with recurrent syncope had the same provocative factors. So we put seven non-syncopal adolescents with chronic fatigue or chronic fatigue <laughs> syndrome through a tilt test, and all of them uh, had hypotension. So we moved to a pilot study in a mix of adolescents and adults designed to help us with sample size estimates for a randomized trial of Florinef. And that uh, pilot w gave us some very useful information about the illness. One was that in 23 
patients with chronic fatigue syndrome lightheadedness was much more common than had been appreciated in the past, as were other features like uh, excessive sweating, blurred vision, and even syncope in 43%. Uh, the patients reported that a number of conditions that we see in the patients with orthostatic intolerance also exacerbated their fatigue. One was physical exertion. You expect that because of the definition of CFS. But they would get tired after a hot shower, often having to lie down for 20 minutes afterwards. Uh, any prolonged standing, like at a cocktail party, uh, would bring on symptoms, warm environments, and then following a lightheaded episode. When we tilted them, in the first 45 minutes, they were at a 70-degree angle. We made their CFS bad that day. They said, you've, you've caused me a relapse. We then learned to reverse it by giving them two liters of normal saline uh, afterwards, and they left feeling better than they came in. We didn't actually think that was a big enough deal to study formally. We should have, uh, but that was, that's a missing piece from the literature. And then when we did the tilt test, uh, look just at the stage one results. This is the first 45 minutes of upright tilt. 16 of the CFS patients developed hypotension, none of the controls. As we added isoproteranol in stages two and three to boost their heart rate, uh, we saw more people getting hypotensive. But isoproteranol is a drug that if you keep increasing, all of us will faint. So you have to look at the stage three results with some uh, um, uh, caution. But look at the odds ratio for an abnormal tilt in CFS. We don't see odds ratios of 55 in, in clinical medicine. The other thing we noticed in these patients is that many of them were acrocyanotic. So this is a girl who uh, had to drop out of Kenyon College because of her excessive fatigue. And there she is standing against the wall in the clinic. Uh, on the left is her hand with my hand as the background color comparison. And on the right, Notice uh, the three areas where my fingers pressed on her skin. I stepped back, fiddled with the camera, uh, which I didn't know how to use, got it in focus. Seven or eight seconds go by. She still doesn't have any capillary refill. So in the ICU setting, we'd have her on a dopamine drip. Uh, and I mention that because I think it reflects a, some sort of severe abnormality in the cutaneous circulation that people haven't figured out yet. But they, these patients do have excessive pooling in their extremities. Well, the big news from the, from the open trial was that with open treatment of these patients, we saw a huge improvement in their general uh, wellness score. They went from a median, mean of about 35 up to about 70 in two to four months. And uh, this drew attention to treating orthostatic intolerance as a way to make their function better. Since then, uh, all pediatric studies of the topic have shown that orthostatic intolerance is much more frequent. And I'll draw your attention to two of these. One is by Julian Stewart in, at the New York Medical College, who's been a prolific contributor on this topic. Uh, he looked at 26 patients with CFS. 18 of them met criteria for POTS in the first 10 minutes of upright tilt, and 22 ultimately developed hypotension. So the overall rate of orthostatic intolerance was 96%, and many of them had acrocyanosis. Others have shown delayed recovery of cerebral oxygenation uh, after just seven minutes of standing. Uh, Vigard Willer, who's also another very productive researcher in Norway, uh, did a study where he initially thought that the 70-degree angle of the tilt test was unethical for the uh, healthy controls because some of them were fainting. So he lowered the, the angle to 20 degrees, which would be like most of us watching TV on the weekend on the sofa, an innocuous stress. Uh, but it was enough to provoke symptoms, circulatory symptoms, in the CFS patients and to show abnormalities in autonomic tone, uh, whereas the controls were unaffected. So it really accentuated the differences between groups. Uh, this girl also had joint hypermobility, so let me um, talk about this for a second. And this is a topic that uh, brings on fear and loathing on the part of geneticists, so with apologies. Uh, uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is itself a heterogeneous disorder of connective tissue, and the, the stated prevalence in the published literature is about one in 5,000. And these are the patients that were the rubber men in the circus in the old days. They have skin extensibility. Uh, they're the contortionists in the IBM commercials. They have tremendous joint hypermobility. Some have cutaneous uh, scarring abnormalities. They can have early onset varicose veins, suggesting that there's involvement of the vasculature. 
And then in every genetics monograph that you used to read, uh, easy fatigability and widespread pain were common of unclear uh, origin and thought to be this ineluctable feature of the genetic condition. You were stuck with it. So uh, we noticed in the clinic that we had one girl with uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and we started looking more carefully and systematically for this. So over the next 100 patients we saw, we found 12 with full-blown Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, way higher than the one in 5,000 in the population, and all of them had orthostatic intolerance. So we made this kind of connection of overlapping Venn diagram conditions, uh, and this has been confirmed from the other direction, that when they look at Ehlers-Danlos syndrome patients, especially those with hypermobility type, they see a lot of orthostatic problems, and treatment can help their uh, function. Uh, this is the, the audience participation part. I mentioned the Byton score earlier, and you can check yourselves for this one, but Byton score comes when you can bring your pinky past uh, 90 degrees. That's one point on each side. And if you've got, if you've got that, raise your hand. Uh, the, second, uh, the second maneuver is to bring your thumb down to your forearm. And there are usually a couple of people in the room who can do that. Have you got that? Yes. We have a winner. Uh, then, then more than 10 degrees of hyperextensibility at the elbows, and you can see that on the bottom part of this slide. And notice that girl, some of you in the front may see that she's got very easily visible veins, and she's got a lot of sagging in the triceps area. And this, is, this girl's 20. So uh, you get one, one point on each knee for more than 10 degrees of hyperextensibility, and then the ninth point is for palms to the floor. So the Biden score is not a perfect measure of joint hypermobility. It doesn't address, say, shoulder dislocations or problems, but it's a fairly useful screen. Uh, 20% or so of children in healthy populations have a score of four or higher. These are our dancers, our gymnasts, our swimmers. So it's not necessarily a, a disease. Uh, it's simply a trait. Uh, we also ask the kids what other tricks they can do. So they can do all kinds of things with their fingers. The boy on the far right is showing the easy inversion of the upper lids and the Gorlin sign, which is the ability to touch your tongue to the tip of your nose. They get uh, early onset uh, strii, even without weight change. And this is the girl who had the uh, leg and hand picture. She'd had a laparoscopic uh, appendectomy and her wound dehissed twice. The surgeons at that point were suspecting the mother, an NIH project officer, of having Munchausen syndrome. But really what she had was Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and she needed the suture line much better reinforced. So we looked at, we had EDS patients. Then we said, what about the milder hypermobile patients? So we compared 58 with uh, CFS to 58 children uh, who were healthy otherwise. And the healthy ones in the yellow, you can see, have a nice uh, uh, distribution. About 24% of them had a score of four or higher. And then when you look at the blue graph, it's as if these are two completely different populations. The CFS patients were skewed towards the hypermobile end of the spectrum. 60% of them had hypermobility. Now, they'd had that all their lives. They developed their chronic fatigue syndrome as adolescents, so it's a risk factor of some sort, but not the only thing, and certainly it's not the case that everybody with hypermobility uh, goes on to get CFS. How's our time? A uh, little bit on the movement restrictions. Um, we've noticed a lot of these patients have unusual postures, typically head forward, kyphotic, and our physical therapists can reproduce some of their CFS symptoms if they put tension on the peripheral nerves with certain maneuvers. And we were trying to figure out why were these kids so wiped out day one after their PT assessment. So we did a study where it was just a pilot study where we looked at doing a passive straight leg raise to 10 degrees, and then we'd measure heart rate, blood pressure, pulse ox, skin temperature, everything we could, thinking this we were provoking something autonomic. Uh, then we lifted their leg to 20 degrees for two minutes and so on for a total of 12 minutes to a 60-degree maximum, which shouldn't have been particularly difficult. Uh, the patient who we were studying has, was able to attend MIT, and here's the graph of his symptoms. So we started provoking his fatigue in the red up to about a, an 8 out of 10, and it kept getting worse after the test was over. He was more lightheaded, even though we were raising his leg and improving venous return. 
he became very foggy mentally and really was having trouble after about the uh, halfway point answering our questions, how are you feeling? What's your number for this symptom or that? And he even had visual blurring. Uh, so we went on in a co cohort study to select out a matched uh, pairs analysis. We matched them by sex and Biden category because those things can affect range of motion. And we looked at uh, 11 individual maneuvers that are usually done by physical therapists. A seated slump test, ankle dorsiflexion, straight leg raise, a measure of median nerve excursion, prone knee bend, and prone press up. And in the red box, I just wanted to illustrate that for all of these measures, the CFS patients were tighter than the controls. On none, was, there wasn't the random distribution of one group having more restrictions than the other. And then these were the ones that were significantly different, especially straight leg raise seemed to be a big issue that uh, many more patients with CFS were unable to get past 45 degrees. And when we looked at the distribution of the uh, number of range of motion abnormalities from 0 to 11, again, that was shifted higher for the CFS patients. The median number of abnormalities was higher, 5 versus 2, and more of them were likely to have three of these. And this seems kind of paradoxical. What in the world is going on to make these hypermobile people also be restricted? But the physical therapists point out that if you've got very lax ligamentous support, you're going to have focal abnormalities in uh, movement. We have a minute or two for the IOM stuff. So there's been a lot of controversy about the name. The patients hate the name chronic fatigue syndrome because when they tell people what they have, the response is usually, oh, I'm tired too. <laughs> and, and they want to reach in and do a lobectomy. Um, so the Institute of Medicine uh, uh, had a committee that worked for a year, and David and I were talking about the amount of work involved. This was, uh, for me, a, a great experiment in um, uh, uh, the lack of... Um, of consent uh, to an experiment. They said, would you, would you be able to make a meeting in Washington uh, uh, for one and a half days on five occasions during the year? What they didn't tell you is that in between times, uh, you'd be reading a few papers. <laughs> uh, so this was, our charge was to develop an evidence-based criteria for MECFS, and that's the name the federal government uses for myalgic encephalomyelitis, the term used more in Europe and recommend whether new terminology was warranted. So we looked at 9,000 papers uh, over the course of probably six months. And so the main finding summarized here is that the committee felt that this was a serious, chronic, complex, multi-system disease that often can profoundly limit the health and activity of the affected patients. And they recommended more focused diagnostic criteria looking at the core symptoms. So impairment in function post-exertional malaise, unrefreshing sleep, and either cognitive impairment or orthostatic intolerance. And this shows you that if you also insist on these being present uh, in moderate severity at least half the time, you really start being able to discriminate between the CFS population and the others. One of the main uh, studies that uh, led to the elevation of the post-exertional malaise work to primacy was uh, this one which has been replicated by others. This is Betsy Keller's work from Ithaca showing that when you take uh, healthy people and do two uh, exercise tests back to back, one each day, there tends to be a bit of an improvement in the second day in their performance. Whereas this uh, slide showing the drop off in function from day one to day two in the CFS patients shows that there's an abnormality in their ability to replicate exercise, and it's not related to effort. One of the nice things they can do in exercise studies is look at the respiratory exchange ratio, which measures whether that person is putting forth maximal effort, and that's shown in the uh, upper right box here, uh, um, uh, and, and shows that they were putting forth effort, uh, and this has been replicated on several occasions. Another study on exercise from Allen and Kathleen Light that I won't go into in detail showed that after 25 minutes of exercise to 70% of their maximal heart rate, uh, they looked at gene expression changes that affected pain pathways, adrenergic pathways, and immune pathways, in the, and this was re uh, measured in the white blood cells after exercise. And you can see this vast difference between the controls at the top and the CFS patients in the bottom, and it, the pattern of expression of these gene changes reflects what we hear from them about when their symptoms get worse. 
So the committee then ended by saying we recommend a new name, Systemic Exertion Intolerance Disease. Rolls right off the tongue, kind of poetic, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Uh, not all of us were enthusiastic about that, but we thought that overall the evidence review was really good and a very good summary of, of things. We felt that the focus on these core symptoms would improve the process of recognizing these patients and getting them to care. So this report was released at 11 a.m. on February 10th. By about 3 p.m. on February 10th, we were getting a sense from the blogs that uh, all was not well. Uh, one of them listed this as the IOM disaster, and the patient said the new name was an abomination, outrageous and intolerable, highly offensive, degrading, and my favorite, another imperialistic U.S. adventure. <laughs> Even the guy whose work we focused on throughout the report said, how could this have happened? So he was bailing. Uh, and the best part was about a week later, we got an email uh, from the, from the patient community worldwide who rejected the report, stop SEID and think again. And if you can see, some of you may be able to see in the top, it says group card, share the love. <laughs> I'm sure glad they didn't share the hate. But anyway, so the naming uh, uh, from the IOM report was probably uh, our least impressive accomplishment, but the evidence review, I think people are starting to realize, was quite helpful in shifting some focus in the, in the area. So I hope what I've showed you today is that this is a, an illness with substantial mor morbidity. Uh, the physical examination is often abnormal with acrocyanosis, tachycardia or hypotension, joint hypermobility, movement restrictions. And many of the symptoms are amenable to this established therapy. So we don't need a new randomized trial in CFS on what works for pediatric headache. Those studies are out there. There are lots of things that we can do that we know to do as pediatricians that can help with their function. Uh, we still don't know the optimal therapy, and certainly we need more study of that, and that um, we don't know what to do with these really severely affected patients who are really, really miserable through no fault of their own. I uh, just want to acknowledge we've had some grant support. I was very fortunate to get an endowed chair to help me allow, or help allow me to do the work that I've been doing. We've had a volunteer uh, a research assistant who was a mother of one of my patients. She wanted to please, can't I give back? And I thought this would be an albatross around my neck. Uh, she turned out to be three times as organized as I am and has been very helpful. Uh, some very good summer students, and a lot of our work has been funded by private philanthropy. So I'm going to stop there and see if people have questions. No, and the, the tough thing is that it's unclear what comes first, but it, the, there are a number of biological differences between depression and CFS with regard to cortisol uh, levels. Um, exercise is another one that's different. If, you, if you've got depression, we always recommend that they exercise and they tend to feel better, whereas the CFS patients feel much worse. Uh, it becomes blurred when you get to the point where somebody's been really ill and unable to attend school for five years. If they're not depressed, it's sort of surprising. Um, some of the rates, the prevalence rates for those disorders are confusing because many of them were first reported from psychiatry clinics. Well, they're going to see a different group than I will. So nobody's really sure what the overall rates are, but we don't see very much in the way of bipolar illness or other big-time big uh, psychiatric conditions. And my pediatric psychiatry colleagues say that these are patients uh, you know, who even if they have depression and you treat it, it doesn't fix the overall problem. Another question. If the yeah. symptoms were helped at all, they, they can be, in part, sometimes the SSRIs are good for uh, vasoconstriction and improving circulation. So it might be that they help, but not necessarily for the reasons you thought. Dr. Um, I'm curious, you uh, gave your one patient methylphenidate. I'm wondering if you used to, it wound up being a very low dose of methylphenidate, 10 milligrams, or if she really needed to bump up to 50, 60, 70 milligrams? She, that girl was on about 30 or 40, and we find that it's, the range is about what you see in treating your ADD patients. It's, it's not at the low end, usually. Dr. Uh, on, on the medications like that, how... 
Yeah, it's a good point. We don't have um, very many randomized trials. There's one on uh, that the Norwegian group did on clonidine. They had, uh, I think it was about 60 patients per group. It was published in JAMA Pediatrics. Uh, and they were able to show that clonidine reduced the, the high sympathetic tone uh, coming from the CNS, which they thought was responsible for symptoms. Turned out that clonidine made the patients more fatigued. So in that study, it didn't work. But there's been very little funding to support doing randomized trials. And as you can imagine from the way I explained us treating these patients, we're, we're trying to do several things at once, which is not a very good um, basis for being certain about which thing helped. Uh, I think what I proposed in a, in a discussion at the FDA when they were asking about what should they do about trials in this area, I thought our job ought to be to get patients better uh, and then if we have a purported therapy that works, randomize them to a withdrawal of that medication. And that might be a way of sorting this out, almost like a, a, a larger uh, series of N of 1 trials. So I think there's a way to approach it scientifically if there's the, the uh, interest. You see, you see similar, uh, not similar, I'm struck by Concussion rates in adolescents seem to be higher in girls than boys for a similar mechanism, probably. And I'm wondering if anyone has been looking in that research realm about overlap between the, the CFS physiology and the post-concussive syndrome. I, I, I think that would be great. I, haven't, I don't follow the concussion literature, but in talking to those people, I'll often see the patients after concussions. Um, and typically what you see is if they had one faint every six months, they're fainting once a week after their concussion, then the, the, the autonomic symptoms start to fade as they improve. Um, I would wonder if part of the reason some people get a concussion is they've got more laxity of the ligaments, and so they get more of a whipping effect. I don't know if anyone's even done Biden scores on a group of concussion patients and controls, but that would seem to be an awfully simple study. Peter, um, people are using mineralocorticoid treatment to address the hypotension. I think you published a, yep. a control trial yep. comparison. What's the latest thinking about that? So we did, we did a controlled trial in the adults. So nobody's done one in the adolescents. And we showed that, much to our surprise, it, didn't, it just was a washout, that they didn't do any better. Part of the dilemma in the controlled trial is you can't modify all the other 10 comorbid factors that are at play. So I think that's a, a methodologic challenge for those studies. We still use a fair bit of fluoronef. Um, the main categories of drugs for treating the orthostatic intolerance are things to improve blood volume, vasoconstrictors, and things that will block adrenergic sympathetic tone. And so. I, I select the medications based on some other factor in the history. So if the child has an increased salt appetite, I'll try them on Florinef first. We had one boy who would keep a salt shaker at the bedside and lick salt out of his hand. He was getting Florinef for me, not something else. But it's very much a trial and error process when you're selecting these medications and seeing what would work. It's kind of like what we do with migraines, right? You're never, you're usually not right the first time you try something. So it's, a, it's tedious, and I think that's part of why treating these patients has been a challenge uh, in, in the current era. Okay, Shirley, you get a second one to wrap us up. Do you think there'd be adults? How can you knit while you're, while you're listening? Yeah, nobody's done very good studies comparing the two, you know, because the pediatricians take care of the younger kids, the adults are scared of them. Uh, but many of the same risk factors apply. There was a paper recently that's of, of interest because you're just talking about attention span. Uh, Gudrun Lang and Benjamin Nadelson's group had done a study using fMRI, and they were looking at why can't we can't, why can't we identify what's wrong with these self-reported cognitive problems? Because if you do simple uh, tests, the CFS patients could always answer the questions. They looked about even. 
Uh, on fMRI tasks, what was clear was that they needed to bring in more brain regions to do the same work than the healthy people. And a, a study recently confirmed that in pediatrics. So there's something else going on. Um, Julian Stewart's group showed that uh, they were equal uh, at baseline, the CFS patients and the controls in, in a number of um, cognitive tests. But if you did the cognitive tests as you cranked up their tilt angle, once you got to about 40 degrees, the CFS patients were making tons more errors. So it looks like it's a mix of things. Thank Dr. Rose, thank Dr. Goodman for inviting Dr. Dr. Modlin. John Modlin shared his regards and, and the email stated that, and I can see why he said, a superb physician and an even finer gentleman. So thank you, Peter. Fooled him, didn't I? <laughs> thank you.